I'll begin by reading from the first epistle of John, chapter 3. First epistle of John, the first three verses of chapter 3. Hear the word of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Let's pray. Great and glorious God, as we approach one of the apex doctrines of the entire Bible and certainly of soteriology in the thought and mind of the Puritans, we pray that our hearts may be lifted up and that we would truly cry out, Soli Deo Gloria, Soli Gratia, as we hear the Puritans expound the beauty and the glory and the fullness and the intimacy of this grand and comprehensive doctrine we call the adoption of sons. Help us in delivering this message and let it be of inestimable value to every true believer gathered here in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you an appetite wetter. Thomas Watson, we have enough in us to move God to correct us, but nothing to move him to adopt us. Therefore, exalt free grace for the doctrine of adoption. Begin the work of angels here. Bless him with your praises, who has blessed you in making you his sons and daughters. Well, the Puritans have gotten bad press for their treatment of the doctrine of adoption. In his otherwise amazing book, J.I. Packer writes in his chapter on the sons of God, the Puritan teaching on the Christian life, so strong in other ways, was notably deficient on adoption. And in his otherwise fine article on adoption, our good friend Errol Hulse asserts that the Puritans did little in exploring this truth apart from a few paragraphs here and there. Well, I once received an assignment to do an article for the festschrift of Wayne Spear on the Puritans on adoption. I read the statements by Packer and Hulse and a few others, like-minded statements, and began to get a bit nervous. Am I going to find enough material to, to talk about, to really develop an article. Well, as I began to look around, I discovered that William Ames, Thomas Watson, Samuel Willard, and Herman Witsius all gave it ample and fulsome treatment in their systematic theologies. In fact, Witsius spent more pages on it than on justification. And then I looked at William Perkins and found nine areas where he addresses adoption in various lengths. I found sermons by Jeremiah Burroughs, Thomas Cole, Roger Drake, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Manton, Stephen Marshall, Richard Sibbs, John Tennant, and John Waite on adoption. Then, of course, I knew that the Puritans were the first who included a separate chapter on adoption in a Reformed confessional statement, namely chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession. But what I didn't know as I began to research deeper, that there were seven or eight other entire treatises that lesser-known Puritans had written on adoption. Treatises by John Crabb, Simon Ford, Tom Granger, uh, Cotton Mather, Samuel Petto, and Samuel Willard. By the time I had gathered my bibliographical material together, I had well over 2,000 pages of the Puritans on 
adoption. Now, how could I reduce that to an 8,000-word Festschrift article? As I began to study, I, I realized that I was studying something that no secondary source had ever written about. And so I decided to forget the 8,000 word limit. And I spent the better part of a summer just writing and feeding my own soul with this great and glorious doctrine. And what ended up happening for me was that outside of my doctoral dissertation subject, Assurance of Faith, this writing of this, what turned into a book, was more precious to my own soul than anything I've ever written my entire life. And I can say to you that my own personal relationship with God as my father was augmented in a manifold way from studying these few thousand pages. And so I want to bring to you the gist of, 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 of what I study. I want to bring to you just the essence of it in seven points, seven different thoughts that the Puritans bring us about this glorious doctrine of adoption. So point number one is the greatness and comprehensiveness, the greatness and comprehensiveness of adoption. The Puritans were fond in all their books of the transforming power, the superlative value, and the surprising wonder of adoption. That's what they stress. They spoke of its greatness, its excellency, its dignity, and its comprehensiveness often. William Perkins said that a man should esteem his adoption as God's child to be greater than being the child or heir of any earthly prince, since the son of the greatest potentate may be the child of wrath, but the child of God by grace hath Christ Jesus to be his eldest brother, with whom he is fellow heir in heaven. He hath the Holy Ghost also for his comforter in the kingdom of heaven for his everlasting inheritance. The Dutch Puritan, Puritan with a small p, Wilhelmus Abraco put it this way, from being a child of the devil to becoming a child of God, from being a child of wrath to becoming the object of God's favor, from a child of condemnation to becoming an heir of all the promises of God and a possessor of all the blessings of the Bible and to be exalted from the greatest misery to the highest felicity, this is the doctrine of adoption, and it exceeds all comprehension and all adoration. This is a great doctrine, a comprehensive doctrine. Now, most Puritans place their treatment of adoption in the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, between justification and sanctification because it has a legal dimension to it, being adopted into the family of God on judicial grounds, and it has a sanctifying influence that flows out of it because now you're a member of the family of God and God is your father and Christ is your brother and so on. But there are some Puritans that put it into justification. Others put, placed it in sanctification. But there are also some that placed it as the overarching doctrine, kind of the fulcrum in which all the other aspects of the Ordo Salutis flowed out of, or rather flowed into. The apex of them all, where we might be prone to put union with Christ as kind of the apex of everything and everything flowing out of it. Some Puritans said the apex of salvation is the doctrine of adoption. One of those was Stephen Marshall. And Stephen Marshall wrote this, though sometimes in the Holy Scriptures our sonship is but one of our privileges, yet very frequently in the Scripture, all that the believers do obtain from Christ in this world and in the world to come, here and to all eternity, is comprehended in this one thing that they are made to be the children of God. Marshall goes on to cite several examples from the Bible, and then he concludes this way, I know not how often the whole covenant of grace is expressed in this one word, I will be their father, and they shall be my children. 
Or consider, he goes on to say, Ephesians 1 verse 5, where Paul comprehends all of salvation in this one expression, having predestinated us to the adoption of children. The adoption of children. So clearly, wherever you place adoption in the order of salutis, the Puritans would say unitedly, this is a lofty, comprehensive, glorious doctrine of salvation. Thought number two. Adoption in the two testaments. The clearest of all the writers here is kind of a a Puritan who had one foot in the English tradition and one foot in the Dutch, Herman Witsius. Herman Witsius said that in the Old Testament, believers are not often brought the subject of adoption. He mentions Elihu in the book of Job and a few other places, but he says really adoption in the Old Testament is like, compared to the New Testament, is like the light of the stars compared to the bright light of the sun. In the New Testament, Witsius says, believers bask in the sunlight of God's superabounding, adopting grace and liberty merited for them by their elder brother. He writes this, For after our elder brother, having taken upon him human nature, had visited this lower world and freely undergone a state of various servitude for us, he brought us into true liberty, John 8, 36, removed the tutors and blotted out the handwriting of ordinances which was contrary to us. And he now, that is Jesus, now brings us into the Father's secret counsels, shows us the Father by showing us himself, and makes us into a royal priesthood. And so he calls us directly to an inheritance of spiritual and heavenly good things and appoints unto us a kingdom, such that believers are now eminently and emphatically called the sons of God. And he quotes the text I read, 1 John 3, 2, as Isaiah had prophesied, and the Holy Spirit witnesses with their spirits that this is so. So God consciously becomes their personal father, and this father name becomes God's new covenant name, representing the family covenant to which he binds himself on behalf of his children, so they now have liberty to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, this glorious unfolding of the fatherly relationship of God to us in the New Testament shines like the sun in the life of the true believer when he may be conscious of his own adoption. And so adoption, in Witsius' mind, in many of the Puritans, is something more than, something more than justification. And that's the third thought. Adoption is not simply justification. It's fundamental as justification is, as primary and foundational as justification is, as basic as it is to meet our spiritual need, forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God and a right to eternal life. And as true as it is that we could not be adopted without justification, the Puritans said adoption is yet a richer blessing. It's the judge coming down after he justifies, after he acquits, the guilty, taking off his robe, coming down, said one of the Puritans, putting his arm around the acquitted and saying, will you come home with me? I want you to live with me. I want you to be part of my family. It's the Mephibosheth portion. You will eat bread at my table always. Justification. It's wonderful. It's great. We've got to have our guilt, our punishment removed. We've got to know the right to eternal life. We've got to have the forgiveness of sins. But adoption brings us into the very family of God, brings us into the intimacy of a personal relationship. Justification and adoption both have legal elements, the Puritan said. But adoption is the preeminent personal relationship. For it is one thing 
said one Puritan. To have God accept us as a judge, it's another to have him treat us as a bona fide father with all the love and all the care that that involves. Thought number four, Westminster Assembly's definitions of adoption. Shorter Catechism, question 34. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Larger Catechism, question 74. Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put on them, the spirit of his son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises, and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. And then the confession of faith itself, chapter 12, all those that are justified, God vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry out, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Now, there are a few key points that flow out of these definitions of adoption given by Westminster. Let me just mention four of them real quickly. Number one, it's intriguing, isn't it, that the Westminster divines, often accused of being too scholastic in their theology, provide the Christian church's first confessional reformed chapter on the doctrine of adoption, one of the least scholastic doctrines of the Christian faith. And secondly, it's interesting too how tightly Westminster ties union with Christ and adoption. The sonship we receive is Christ in the first place. Adoption transpires, Westminster says, in and for his son. Jesus Christ, so that the adopted have his name put on them, the spirit of his son given to them. Justification, adoption, sanctification all flow out of our union with Christ in the larger catechism question 69. So contrary to what some scholars have suggested, the Westminster divines were as concerned as Calvin was to maintain that to be adopted is to be united with Christ in and through his sonship. And thirdly, Westminster divines harmonize beautifully in these three definitions. The forensic, the judicial, and the familial elements of adoption. Notice that they spoke of both the judicial pronouncement of adoption and the adoptive experience of sonship, which they refer to as liberties and privileges of adoption. So adoption is not exhausted by its forensic aspects, but the forensic aspect in Westminster implies an ensuing familial life of sonship that manifests itself in the visible church, which is described by Westminster, Article 25, as the house and the family of God. And finally, running throughout all three definitions here is the emphasis of Westminster that adoption is an act of free, sovereign grace. In adoption, the unlovable sinner is freely loved by God, freely taken into the family of God. Adoption, said Thomas Watson, is a mercy that is spun out of the bowels of free grace. All by nature are strangers. Therefore, none have a right to sonship, but only God 
is pleased to adopt one and not another, to make one a vessel of glory, another a vessel of wrath, so that the adopted heir may cry out, Lord, how is it that thou wilt show thyself to me and not unto the world? If you're a believer, a true believer sitting here this morning, praise God for this astonishing doctrine of adoption. Why would God choose you? Why would he ever choose me? If God can convert me, he can convert anyone. If he can convert you, he can convert anyone. And that's a wonder. But then to be adopted and brought into his intimate circle of Trinity is unspeakable. What manner of love is this, says John, that we should be called the sons of God when we've treated God as the sons of the devil. Number five. This leads, therefore, to the Christian who is conscious of his own adoption by God to a transforming of every relationship we have in this life. And that's where 1 John 3, 1 through 3, just excels for us. And where the Puritans excelled as well. John Cotton wrote a commentary in 1 John. It's an outstanding commentary. And in these three verses, he excels, explaining to us how every single relationship in our lives is changed by the fact of God's adopting us as sons of God. Here's where J.I. Packer also, by the way, in his chapter, Sons of God, is, is, is very good. He, he says this, sonship must be the controlling thought, the normative category, if you like, at every point in a believer's life. And you see, what the Puritans said was that is not only true, but in that being true, we are just acting like the Son, We are just being conformed to the image of the Son in acting out our sonship through the Son. This is how Jesus acted. When Jesus was on earth, what governed everything he did? It's my meat and will and drink, my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. I must be about my Father's business. What mattered to Jesus was his relationship with his father and what his father would think of what he was doing and where he was going and what was his goals. Everything, you see, was responding in Jesus to his unique filial relationship with the father. It controlled all of his living, all of his thinking. If I do not the works of my father, believe me not, he says. And Jesus then turns to his disciples. And this is what the Puritans are fond of pointing out. To let, and says to them, I urge you, this is my paraphrase, to let their, your thoughts and your lives be controlled by the conviction that God is now your father. I ascend to my father and your father. You are his children and he knows all your needs. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things will be added to you. So what are these relationships that are radically changed? When you know that God is your father. Well, well, well open, open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John 3. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Number one is our relationship to God changes. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. You see, God's adopted children learn that the only place in the universe... Where true security can be found is in the household of the Heavenly Father. And Jesus taught his disciples this truth in many ways. He urged them to think about God's fatherly love by comparing it to the love of a human father. Only far better. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? So the comparison is between the imperfect fatherhood of earthly fathers who are evil, we have fallen natures, we have flaws and failures and sins, and the perfect fatherhood of God. 
John Cotton writes of this. Surely I am not a child of God because I find much pride in my heart and much rebellion and corruption in my spirit. Surely if I were born of Christ, I should be like him. But what says John here? We are the sons of God even now, though there is still much unbelief in our hearts and much weakness and many corruptions within us. But despite all this, Jesus will show us that our heavenly Father's love is expansive and glorious beyond imagination. And so much beyond imagination that John basically says, in the original Greek anyway, it's a little more plain, <laughs> for what kind of what kind of world does this love come? This, this is otherworldly love that the Father should take enemies and rebels and give his only begotten Son for them in order to make them sons of the living God. Our relationship to God changes and we see our Father is in control of everything. Our Father gives us security. Our Father gives us all the benefits of salvation and everything that happens to us comes our way. Even our chastenings, Hebrews 12, come to us from a father's hand. And so no matter what happens to us, you see, we can, we can bow under God when we realize that he is our father and say, all things work together for good to them who love God. I don't understand how, Lord, but thou art my father, my father. That means everything. I had an elder in my church who uh, underwent really serious knee surgery and it got infection. He had to go back in, have a second surgery and it got infected again. He had to go back in and have a third surgery and the doctor said, if, if you get infected again, I'm going to have to take your leg off above your knee. And the whole church was praying for him earnestly and uh, two months later, he calls me up one day and he says, uh, Pastor, this is, this is George. I just want to let you know that I got the infection back. I said, oh, George, you're just feeling your gut level. I'm so, so sorry. Oh, no, 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 pastor. Don't feel sorry for me. My father knows best. Oh. My first reaction was, this man is a thousand times more spiritual than I am. But you see, this is the way, this is the way, this is what the Puritans are teaching us. A Christian should respond. My father knows best. But then secondly, our relationship to the world changes. Look at verse 1b. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. You see, we ought to expect the hostility, the estrangement, even the hatred of the world, even though we don't explicitly provoke it, because the world hates Jesus. And since we, he's our elder brother, and we're united to him, and we're sons of the same father, we ought to expect the hostility of the world as well. So don't be surprised when the world opposes you. When the worldly thinking is antithetical to your thinking. John Cotton says, If God saw it meet that the Son should be thus afflicted in the world and drink of such a bitter portion of God's wrath, please do not let yourself think that we shall go to heaven and partake of those heavenly mansions which Christ has prepared for us without drinking from the same cup that he drank of. Let us account ourselves happy that God will so esteem us as to make us his sons and let us share in drinking the same cup he drank of. Do you understand what that's saying? We can thank our Father, even for the rejection of the world. And then thirdly, our relationship to the future changes, to the future. We cherish a great hope. John goes on to say, verse 2, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, what we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Isn't that amazing? The prospects for God's adopted family are great, for his children, that's you and me, dear believer, will receive a glorious inheritance that we cannot even imagine the extent of. 
John Cotton says, God keeps the extent of this inheritance hidden so that we may be more like our suffering head, have our faith kept in exercise and be watchful and be tolerated to some degree in this world. For if God should allow them to be perfectly holy in this world, the men of the world would not allow them to live among them long. So one day, one day you see, we will be perfectly holy. We will be as holy as Christ is holy. In glory, he will look at us and see no sin in his Jacob and no transgression in his Israel. It's unbelievable. You won't have to complain in heaven with Paul. Evil is present with me. All good will be walled in. All evil will be walled out. You will be sin-free in Emmanuel's land. Thanks to God the Father. Thanks to God the Son. Thanks to God the Holy Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, Cotton concludes, keeps the best surprises for his children unto the end, the day of glory, when he shall turn all their sorrow into joy. And then fourthly, our relationship to ourselves will change when we realize our adoption. Verse 3, every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So if I'm living out of my adoption, I will understand that I need to embrace the Father's will and purpose for me, and that I must strive for greater levels of holiness, because holiness produces that kind of internal happiness of being in God's family and being holy and pure in his sight in Christ that nothing of this world can give. So John Cotton says this, every child of God has hope in Christ to be made like him at his appearing. That hope is a patient, certain, grounded expectation of all those promises in Christ which by faith we believe to belong to us. And therefore, we are to prepare for that day by purifying ourselves daily using Christ as our pattern. And Cotton goes on to say that purifying ourselves involves loving all that the Father loves and hating all that the Father hates. So that from the moment of conversion to the time we take our final breath, we have one pursuit to purify ourselves before our Father in order to be more like Christ. The Puritan goal over and over in their books is not just to squeak by and get into heaven and, 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 and just barely get converted. no. The goal of conversion itself is to be purified and to become more like Jesus. We are predestinated to be conformed, Paul says, Romans 8, to the image of Christ. And finally, our relationship to the church as the family of God will change. John goes on to express that actually in verses 14 through 18 of 1 John 3. He explains how we've been adopted into a great family a family of God that will be profoundly impacted by and that we ought to love. John says we ought to love the family of God so much that we are willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So once we are adopted into God's big family that no man can number, you will see that's, that you, 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 you will understand that this is, this is your real and your ultimate family. Yes, yes, you have your little nuclear family. But your goal also for your children and grandchildren is that this little nuclear family will be folded into the greater, larger, eternal family that will never die. You know, that's why my dad used to always pray at our family table. Oh, Lord, we can't miss any of our children in heaven one day. We can't miss any of them at the right hand of the side of Christ on the day of judgment. Oh God, save every one of them. And then when we were all saved, my oldest brother and oldest sister were having children. He'd say, Lord, now we can't miss any of the grandchildren. Save every one of them. <laughs> so we ought to be prayer warriors as adopted children of God for our children and our grandchildren, not just because they're our kids, but because they belong to the covenant of God 
that God would take them from that external covenant of relationship with which they've been raised and transfer them into the internal essence of the covenant and adopt them into his spiritual family in truth. And so our relationship to the entire family of God becomes a real one. You see, then we don't, we don't criticize a fellow believer very easily, do we? Because that's my brother and my sister in Christ. I was preaching one time in Metro, Metropolitan Tabernacle on, um, on heaven. And uh, a man came down afterward, or oh, actually a woman came down afterward and said that she was very lonely. She was very lonely because... She was an orphan. Both of her parents had died. She had no brothers and sisters. She was an only child. The only relative she knows she had in the world was an uncle, and he was an Australian. He was an alcoholic. And she said, she was just weeping. She said, but today I realized for the first time in my life that all these brothers and sisters around me are my real brothers and sisters, and I belong to the family of God. You see, adoption changes your every relationship and it changes your behavior because now you live in the context of your father through the son by the spirit. Number six, this brings me then many privileges and many benefits, the Puritans would say. And when you bring all the Puritan writings together, what they stress most of all is that the grand and glorious privilege of this doctrine is that you are an heir and a co-heir with Christ as God's adoptive sons. Men may have many children, writes Jeremiah Burroughs, but they have only one heir. But all the children of God are heirs, I say. Hebrews 12, 23 calls every believer a firstborn heir. And the Puritans make a great deal of this joint heirship with Christ. As co-heirs with Christ, you see, we share in his kingship. And therefore, in the great day, we will sit on thrones and rule with him over what we don't know. But we will partake of the kingdom of God as our inheritance. And ultimately, we are lords and possessors of all things because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. Never forget the day I, I left active duty in the army and I, could, I was in the reserves. I could be called back up for the next five and a half years to, 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 to engage in war. And uh, my, my boss in the army came to me and said to me, I, ho- I hope when you go back out to the world, I, I, hope, uh, I hope you'll do well because it's a, it's a very bad world out there, he said. And I, I said back to him, well, and then he added this. He said, you know, it's safer here in the army. Uncle Sam will take care of us. That's what he said. <laughs> I said, well, my friend, my dear boss, <laughs> I've got a God who will take care of me. And he's, he's, he's bigger. He's bigger than Uncle Sam. And he controls the universe. And he's my father. He will make it well by the grace of God. And you see, this is our benefit. This is our blessing. The God who controls everything is my father. That's like the boy that was on a ship. You've probably heard this story. It's a 19th century story. True story, by the way. And the ship was uh, about to go down. It seemed so anyway. The waves were coming over the sides of the ship. And everyone was worried. Everyone was panicking. And there was a little boy who was very calm. And one of the men who was very much afraid said, you look so calm. Why are you calm? Oh, he said, my father is the captain of the ship. Don't have to worry. Your father is the captain of your ship. If you're a believer, you don't have to worry. Everything that happens to you will turn out for your good, for your glory, for his glory. Don't worry. He's your father. That's what the Puritans would say. But then, after talking about the heirship of Christ, the Puritans also specify all different kinds of blessings, too many to enumerate here. I'm just going to 
give them to you in, in very brief form. You have, you have to get the book to read, to read the detail. Our father, number one, cuts us off from the family to which we naturally belong in Adam. These are all Puritan thoughts put into my own words. As children of wrath and children of the devil, and engrafts us into his own family to make us members of the family covenant of God. Number two, our father gives us freedom to call on him by his father name and gives us a new name which serves as our guarantee of admission to the house of God as sons and daughters of God. Number three, our father gifts us with the spirit of adoption. That spirit, Jeremiah Burrow tells us, enlightens our mind, sanctifies our heart, makes God's wisdom and will known to us, guides us to eternal life. Yes, works the entire work of salvation in us and seals it to us unto the day of redemption. Number four, our father grants us likeness to himself and to his son. He imparts to his children a filial heart and disposition that resembles his own. What a gift that is. Five, our Father especially strengthens our faith through his gifts of promises and prayer. We have access to him because we are the adopted sons of God. You perhaps heard the story of Charles Hodge, the great 19th century Princetonian theologian. When he first came to Princeton, they had a house ready for him and they showed him the entire house. And after... (laughs) After they got done showing it to him, they said to him, uh, uh, Dr. Hodge, we're, we're very honored to have you here, and we want you to know that we'll change anything in this house, anything in this house, anything. Just make your request known. And Dr. Hodge said, I only, only want one thing changed. I noticed on the door of the study, the knob is too high for my youngest child to reach it. Could you put the doorknob lower? Because I have promised all my children they could have access to me at any time. Your father will never turn a deaf ear to you. And he's saying, come to me, my child, at any time. An open throat of grace is worth more than anything in the world. You know, when I was nine years old, my dad took out some money. He laid it on the bed where he was sitting by me. And he said, do you know, do you know what a child of God has that an unbeliever never has? And I always said no to all his questions because I was always wrong anyway. (laughs) He said, a child of God always has a place to go. And then he said this to me, prayer Prayer is worth more than everything in this world combined to have a place to go. Worth more than all this money I'm laying out in front of you. And he said to me, he was just a carpenter with an eighth grade education. Spent his life for 41 years as a ruling elder in the church. Gave his life really to the church more than to his work. So we were quite poor. We, We actually couldn't have a whole hot dog. We had to cut the hot dog the long ways and have it on two buns to save money. He said, you know, your mother and I, son, we're not, we're not going to leave you hardly any money at all when we die. But the Puritan Matthew Henry said, far better to leave your children and your grandchildren a treasury of prayers than a treasury of silver and gold. And I will promise you I will leave you a treasury of prayers. What a gift when we're sons of the Father. What a gift we have to have access to the Father, also on behalf of others, to be intercessor prayer warriors. Six, our Father corrects and chastens us for our sanctification. He chastens every son whom he receives. His chastening are badges of sonship, Hebrews 12 says. Yes, no, no affliction for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to them who are exercised thereby. What a gift that is. Seven, our Father comforts us with his love and pity and moves us to rejoice in intimate communion 
with him and with his son. Eight, our father offers a spiritual Christian liberty as his sons and daughters. Liberty that delivers us from the world, from its powerful temptations and persecutions and threatenings. That delivers us from the bondage of Satan, from hypocrisy and anxiety, from the traditions of men, so that we may freely bind ourselves to the teaching of our Father and gladly take his yoke upon us, the yoke of his Son, and serve him with filial obedience each day, confessing, this is my Father's world. And nine, our Father preserves us and keeps us from falling. He restores us from every backsliding way, recovering, humbling us, always preventing our hypocrisy. And 10, our Father provides everything that we need as his children, both physically and spiritually, and he will protect us from all harm. He'll defend us from all our enemies, Satan, the world, our own flesh. He'll right our wronged cause. He'll assist and strengthen us, always leading us with a helping hand to carry us through every difficulty and temptation. And number 11, the Puritans often mention this as well. Our Father gives us his angels as ministering spirits to serve us for good, to guard us and watch for us. Willard, Samuel Willard called them tutelary angels who guard us from every evil and watch for us for every good. And when we come to die, they will be a convoy, Willard says, to carry our souls home to eternal rest. The benefits of being an adopted child are incredible. We're just scratching the surface here. And then number seven, finally, responsibilities or duties of adoption. Responsibilities or duties of adoption. I have three or four here. Number one, show childlike reverence and love for your father in everything the Puritans stress. Reflect habitually upon your father's great glory and majesty. Stand in awe of him. Render him praise and thanksgiving in all things. That childlike reverence overflow in love to your father. A love that constrains you to employ all the means of grace, to obey all his commands, and to work for him alone. That's our duty, our responsibility. And number two, also to submit to your father in every providence. Samuel Willard, when he visits you with a rod, don't resist or murmur. Don't immediately respond by saying, I'm not a child of God. God is not my father because he's dealing harshly with me. Why is he dealing this way with me? If he were my father, he would have compassion on me. He would deliver me from this grievous and especially sinful cross. No, no, writes William Bahamasah Brockle. Rather, it is fitting for a child to be quiet, to humbly submit and to say, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Anthony Burgess, if thou hadst a childlike disposition, thou wouldst say, although all I feel seems to be bitter, yet he is my father still. I have been an ill child, and this makes him a good father in chastening me and bringing me into the line of obedience. And three, It's our duty, our responsibility, the Puritans say, to obey and imitate our Father and to love his image bearers, to strive to be like him, to be holy as he is holy, to be loving as he is loving, to be imitators of God, to show that we bear the family likeness. And four, we're to resist every hindrance that keeps us from relishing our Father's adopting grace. Anything that gets in the way of relishing that, we've got to put away, the Puritan said. Secret, murmuring frame of spirit, a complaining against God, an unthankful denial of what God has done in our souls, a thrusting off of the promises of God, a keeping of Satan's counsel, a secret tempting of God, a sinful ambition for ourselves a giving too much way to prejudices against God, and on and on they go. Anything, 
you see, that hinders us from relishing our Father's adopting grace must be put away. And finally, number five, rejoice. Rejoice in being in your Father's presence, the Puritans say. Delight in communing with him, Anthony Burgess says. For a son delights to have letters from his father to have discourse about him, especially to enjoy his presence. So shalt thou do through his word. Well, let me conclude. The Puritans teach us a great deal, more than I can say now, about spiritual adoption and its transforming power. They show us that our adoption helps us better grasp the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the power of gospel holiness, our own assurance of faith, the solidity of the Christian family, the glory of the Christian hope. But the Puritans also warn us, warn us of the danger of remaining a member of Satan's family, especially while we're under the means of grace. They call us to repentance and faith. They search our hearts. Whose image do you bear, said one Puritan. Holiness is God's image. Unholiness is the devil's. What family art thou of? But as strongly as they warn us, admonish us, search us, so strongly they invite us. What do you think of it, writes Samuel Willard, who have been so often invited in the gospel to embrace Christ? Will not adoption presented before you be something that is worth your entertaining? Receive the living God by a true faith, and he will not only make you his friends, but into his very children of God. Now let me close with this quote from Samuel Willard. Be always comforting of yourselves with the thoughts of your adoption, dear believer. Draw your comforts from this tap. Fetch your consolations from this relationship. Be therefore often chewing upon the precious privileges of your adoption and make them your rejoicing. Let this joy of adoption outstrip your every other joy. Let this joy dispel the mists of every sorrow and clear up your souls in the midst of all troubles and difficulties as you eagerly await heavenly glory where you will live out your perfect adoption by forever communing with the triune God. For there you will dwell at the fountain and you will swim forever in the bankless and bottomless oceans of glory. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee so much for this glorious doctrine of adoption. And we do pray that we may drink more fully of this doctrine and that we may have our lives transformed by it so that every relationship of our lives may be lived within this truth that we who are true believers are the adopted sons and daughters of the triune God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.